Wood Mackenzie's online future-facing commodities forum is back for its third year. Join us online on March the 27th for an open discussion with our experts on renewables, EVs and advanced battery technology. There'll be two events on that date, one during the day in the Asia-Pacific region and one during the day in Europe and the Americas. So you should be able to find a time to suit you wherever you are in the world. At either one, you'll be able to get insights from our unparalleled integrated coverage of the renewables, battery and electric vehicles value chains. You'll be able to hear our industry-leading analysts unpack their forecasts for key future-facing commodities, including lithium, nickel, copper, aluminium and rare earths. Learn how technology, geopolitics and regulation are transforming the metals markets as we build an electrified future. To register, go to go.woodmac.com FFCF2024. You can find the details in today's show notes. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang. I'm Ed Crooks. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about AI. We're going to be talking about the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. And we're going to be talking about the brutal weather currently hitting the US. You may even be able to hear the icy wind howling around our building right now as I'm talking to you. To discuss those topics, it's a pleasure to welcome again Julio Friedman, who's the chief scientist at the carbon management company Carbon Direct. Hi, Julio. How are you? Delighted to be here. Thanks again for having me. Well, great to have you. And from the snowy mountains of Switzerland, we're joined by Melissa Lott, who's the research director at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy and a professor at Columbia's Climate School. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Doing great. Looking forward to the conversation. It has been a week, but we'll get into that. It's been an exciting week. Yeah, absolutely. Want to talk about that some more. You're in Davos for the World Economic Forum meeting, which we're keen to talk about later in the show. But before we do that, I want to start off by talking about what you've been doing recently, which is you've been talking about a very interesting report on artificial intelligence for climate mitigation. It was published last month by an organization called Innovation for Cool Earth Forum, which is backed by the Japanese government, among other things. And you were one of the co-authors of this report. So perhaps just in case, I don't know if you heard the show last year where we talked about AI, but just for a bit of background, when we talked about it before, essentially, I was a skeptic on some of the claims being made about AI for energy. I took the view that the latest iterations of AI that we're seeing, chat GPT and so on, they could have huge implications for some of the knowledge industries, for journalism, marketing, the law, software engineering, teaching, and so on. But I was fundamentally skeptical that they'd make much of a real difference to most of the energy industries. So, Julio, as I say, you've got this interesting report out. It seems like you think I'm wrong and actually AI is going to be very significant for energy. Why do you think that? So first, let me agree with you on one point. AI is not moving molecules. I know that this is part of your concern. We are moving fuels, we're moving electrons, we're doing all this actual work in the energy system, and AI doesn't do any of that. So uh, as a consequence, I understand the skepticism. But first of all, AI has already delivered substantial benefits in terms of energy applications and decarbonization. It has already delivered substantial insights to climate science, and we've only started scratching the surface. There's two particular ways that I want you to think about the application of AI in energy and climate. One of them is a broad efficiency play. So you can think about things like optimizing manufacturing, optimizing traffic flows, integrating electricity onto the grid, in particular clean electricity. All of those are actually very difficult, complicated optimization problems. AI can do a great job with that. The second way, which is less obvious, is that AI can 
sort of jump the curve on a bunch of energy applications. So think, for example, about novel materials for batteries or novel building materials, novel materials for carbon capture or hydrogen production. The sort of material discovery aspect, again, is a place where AI has real strength. And just this week, there was an announcement of a discovery of a new battery material done in a partnership between Microsoft and Pacific Northwest National Lab that was discovered through AI. Now, discovering a material is not the same thing as putting it into practice. I mean, you still have to manufacture it and produce it and all these other things. But this is the kind of opportunities that we're seeing emerge. Right. But it is still then kind of out there in the, this is what could happen. This is what we expect we might be able to do with AI, really, isn't it? Rather than things that are actually being delivered right now. I mean, you you said at the beginning, some of these optimization type problems are being solved by AI already. Do you have any examples of that? So I've actually got some that we've been diving into here in Switzerland this week, and I will refrain from going into the meeting in detail, Ed, so don't worry. Uh, But I'll say AI is a hot topic. And it's interesting because I'm meeting with a lot of energy folks and a number of people, including in more traditional energy production businesses, have been talking about how AI has been something they've used for a while to optimize their processes for finding reserves, for actually extracting those reserves, for thinking about predictive maintenance, for you know optimizing all the different processes of turning into the products we finally use. And it's really interesting to hear, one, people use AI very loosely in conversation sometimes. So the definition of what we mean is really important, but also to hear different groups say, look, there's different parts of AI that we should dive into. You're saying this AI, you mean this, I'm saying this AI, and that's something I've actually used to optimize my processes in the field for a long time. Um, So that's just one point I want to bring up, which I thought was interesting. AI is being used really loosely in a lot of conversations. Yeah. So actually, this is a good opportunity for me to tell people. We just did a webinar on this with the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia. That will be broadcast uh, very shortly. You can go to the CJEP website at Columbia and find it there. One of the things we do is we start at the beginning by saying, what are we talking about with AI? And then you mentioned sort of large language models, which is how people got excited all of a sudden with ChatGPT and stuff. But there's many different kinds of AI. And at their core, they're basically using learning data sets to optimize around an objective function. That's really the the core benefit of it. An example of one that's being used right now in decarbonization that people don't automatically think of is satellite monitoring of methane. And in fact, a company called Kairos uses AI today to find methane leaks and detect them. Right. Okay. And that's a good point. And I can see that some of these uh, innovations are interesting and useful. Going back to your point, though, as you say, in terms of what companies have been doing in the energy industry for quite a while now, certainly probably 10 years, maybe a bit longer, people have been talking about AI type techniques, often calling them machine learning, right? I think you mentioned this in your report, Julio, that a lot of the time people have been using the expression machine learning to mean what nowadays is being called AI because AI is kind of hip and fashionable and everyone wants to talk about it. It seems to me that those machine learning techniques, so for instance, this would be something like optimizing the operation of a power plant, make it run in the most efficient way possible, going beyond what human operators are able to do in terms of adjusting settings and so on to make that run in the most efficient way possible, letting the machines optimize that and they can achieve better performance. It's not transformational though, right? I mean, definitely people have been able to achieve 
you, know, you might get 5% better performance or 10% better performance. And the companies who sell these kind of solutions talk about this a lot and will be pitching to their customers, hey, look, we can do this much better for you than what you've been doing before. And clearly, if you're running one of these power plants, that's worth having. It's That's not a bad thing. 5% or 10% is a significant improvement for you. It doesn't change the world, though. And that's, as I say, when sometimes you hear AI being talked about, and when I talk about the fashionability of it, and there, there being a kind of a vogue for AI excitement right now, you get the feeling that some people are saying, this is world changing. And that's where I feel like I'm still at the stage of, show me, explain to me, tell me what is really changing the world, as opposed to making these kind of incremental improvements. Um, I wouldn't even just say the comment, this is going to change the world. I run into the conversation of this is going to change the world tomorrow. It's going to fix it all tomorrow. And so the time frame is the thing that I push back on in conversations. It's like, is AI ready to quote unquote solve all these problems and we don't need all these other actions anymore because we have AI? And and so I want to put that in there too, Julio, just to get your responses to it on the timeline part of that statement. So for the audience, AI is not the mission. AI is not the capsule. AI is not the rocket. AI is the booster rocket. We will be able to do all kinds of things better, faster, and so forth. Ed, to your point about is it transformational, there's sort of a canonical number out there around the optimization stuff that says, hey, if we push all the optimization stuff out there economy-wide, we can get 10%. That's a heavy lift, but 10% is also a big prize. That's five gigatons. Like That's really big stuff. Second, the thing that I would point to is the opportunity to do things we haven't done yet that could deliver bigger savings. So for example, half of liquid fossil fuels today for transportation are lost in traffic. If you can just optimize traffic, that's bigger than 10% benefit. And same thing with grid integration. Right now, we're worried about reliability and stuff. If we can load way more renewables onto the grid and have more stability using AI, that can be a larger and faster application. And then last, those curve jumping applications that I've talked about before, things that give us a real breakthrough uh, on manufacturing, on carbon capture, on hydrogen production, on any number of other things that can yield larger than just 10% savings. That is to be seen. And to Melissa's point, we'll see how long it takes those things to happen. We make very specific recommendations in the report about what government should do today. And we really focus on workforce development, not necessarily coders, but like everybody in the world is going to be using this stuff. You better have some literacy. We better train in an equitable way so that everyone has access to this. We better make sure people in the global south have access to these tools and these capabilities and that problems are focused on their world. Bias is a risk uh, that we, we are very concerned about. Last but not least, every government agency that deals with climate should be doing something with AI. They should staff it. They should have an office so that they can start taking advantage of these things. Uh, this is not going to be one of those deals where just industry itself delivers, and primarily because you need access to the data. If you don't get access to the good data, you can't make these transformational changes. And there's real concerns about the propriety and the confidentiality of data that need to be managed. Those are also government tasks. Okay, so I think that's all very important, and I do absolutely take your point on all of that. Another issue I want to raise, we've been talking about uh, the benefits, the actual benefits and the potential benefits of AI. But what about the costs in terms of, in particular, power consumption? There's now a lot of interest in how power demand 
particularly in the United States, I think people have been talking about this, but this is a conversation that is starting to spread around the world. Power demand in developed countries has been broadly flat and was expected to stay flat for a long time. Suddenly, it looks like it's on an upward trend. There's a lot of companies, grid operators, utilities talking about much stronger expected demand growth in the future because of various things going on. But one of the key things is data centers being built to handle the increased demand for computing power. And a big part of that is a massively increased demand for AI services. So how much of a concern is that? I mean, as I say, if you're putting the negative spin on it, you could say, well, look, we've got these kind of modest benefits, theoretical, putative, possible, larger benefits set against very real costs in terms of increased power demand. Right. So and people have in their mind a recent experience with Bitcoin, that Bitcoin suddenly led to an explosion of dirty energy and consumption and so forth. Uh, so a couple of things. First of all, we studied this in the report. And the answer that we are key finding is we need better data. We don't have all the answers of what we'd need. But it looks like today, AI is much less than 1% of demand globally. It's just not as big an energy draw as people think. And even with exponential growth, we're seeing improvements in the efficiency of servers, the efficiency of chips. We're seeing the companies that are building AI really focusing on green power procurement for 24-7 applications. For the low latency applications, you can put them in a place like Iceland, where, where there's an abundance of, of clean energy supply. So there's, these sorts of things are out there. This is not likely to be the big problem. Quite the opposite. Our conclusion is that the savings far outweigh the potential risks, but we should have better data and keep an eye on it. Melissa, where do you come down on this? I mean, I think it's interesting how I think about it. Yeah. So need more data. We'll see how it grows. Um, I think about it back when I was at the International Energy Agency and Department of Energy and all of our models, we had that category called other that, you know, included a lot of widgets and things we did. And we were like, oh, streaming services. Um, anybody else remember when the IEA put out a fact checking piece on like what streaming was doing to electricity demand. Do you guys remember this? Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah so I remember that. And it's one of those, hey, when we have the data to evaluate it, let's evaluate it. In some cases, we might find that this actually leads to those efficiency gains. And so the net result is, yeah, it consumes electricity to get electricity savings so or energy equivalent savings. So maybe it all works out. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. It's still early days. Um, but I can't wait to see the data is the bottom line on this for me. And Julio, you were just talking then about what the world needs to do, what governments need to do in particular in policy terms. Just thinking about that balance between the costs and the benefits of AI, how do we maximize the benefits and minimize the costs and the risks that are associated with it? What more needs to happen? Yeah, we really focus not so much on the cost because we think in general this will deliver cost savings, but we do think about the benefits versus the risks. And there's risks of misapplication. There's risks of bias. There's risks of data leakage and cyber incidents. There's all kinds of risks. Uh, the number one step is getting people smart. Spend some time, learn about this. Uh, really think about it in your enterprise. The same way that medicine is thinking about AI, the same way that journalism is thinking about AI, like the same way that lawyers are thinking about AI, people involved in climate and energy need to do that. We think there's a premium on actually connecting people who do the computational work with the climate people and the energy people. They're not talking enough right now. They don't really know what's possible. 
And we really do think that governments need to put some money into staffing, into human capital development. And last but not least, they can tackle the tough data problems. Um, it, I think that, for example, grid is a great application for AI, but suddenly making all of the grid data public is an incredible risk. It's a risk to the companies, it's a risk to consumers, it's a risk to the nation. You got to manage that for real. So I don't want to be cavalier about the risks either, but we see all of it as manageable. And I'll say around AI period, um, back to so many things that we have been discussing here in Switzerland. See, I didn't mention the meeting yet, Ed. We'll wait till we get to that discussion. But um, we've been talking a lot about workforces and workforce development. I go back to that thing we were discussing months ago, which was just what can AI do for us? And if it's a personalized tutor that provides education for someone's entire life as they maybe pivot between careers or gain skill sets where you don't have as much local access to information about those skill sets, I, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see where we manage, but also where we look for new opportunities with a tool. So yeah, let's um, come on to talking about Davos Molestra and what you've been doing there. Just before we get off the subject of AI, though, I want to pick up on something you were saying, Julia, which I think is absolutely right, which is it's important for everyone to be informed about this, to think about it, to think about how we're going to use these AI tools, what the risks are, what the potential benefits are. And I do think reading your report actually is a great start. And so do uh, everyone go to the website and check that out. And we'll put a link on social media and things uh, around this show so that people can read that for themselves. So, Melissa, as I was saying, you've been in Davos meeting the World Economic Forum this week. AI, you were saying, is one of the things you've been talking about. What What are you doing there in general? What are, What's the, the purpose of your attending this event? And what have you been talking about? One comment before I entered in that, uh, Ed, you remember what you were talking about? Is this your first COP? Is this your first COP? Is this your first COP? Well, this is my first Davos. I've never been to the World Economic Forum events, even on the kind of outside of the secure zone. So. I've been absorbing a lot about what these meetings look like when you're here in person versus reading the headlines. So what I haven't been doing is reading headlines because I have had absolutely no time to read the headlines coming out of Davos in the past few days because, man, I've had my running shoes on because climate and energy is hugely on the agenda. Um, there's an entire section about nuclear. There's just all types of conversations about finance and trade and how we accelerate to reach these different targets around nuclear deployment, renewables deployment, grid improvements, down the line. Just so many, so many conversations. Um, so I'm here moderating conversations uh, between different folks. Today, I was moderating one on green hydrogen. Um, I talked about the colors in the rainbow, Julio, from our episode back in the day on the big switch. It came up. Um, I didn't bust into song, though, with the ministers um, in the room and a bunch of CEOs. I know I should have, um, but there you go. Um, and I am talking and helping educate and communicate around what it means to have an equitable transition, the speed and scale of the transition that we see is needed when we look at the data and the analysis, and breaking that down for people who you know, energy and climate was something they thought about in terms of price at the pump for gasoline, especially in election years or other pieces of it, they used it, but it wasn't top of mind and they're trying to dive into it. And so I think I'm up to, I don't know how many talks, I'm not even going to try to count them at this point, um, but it's been really, really interesting. And so the people you're talking to, I mean, the people, kind of people who go to Davos is typically sort of CEOs, business leaders, leaders from the financial industry, politicians, and so on, right? I mean, it's kind of, um, I'm trying to avoid using the words global elite, but you know what I mean by this. I mean, it, it's that um, those are the people, leaders in 
various different fields from all around the world, right? Who you're getting to talk to. Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely. I, you can, I, I do know about some of the headlines I imagine are out there because I heard the helicopters flying in to drop off some, some fancy people and, you know, security got up in some areas and all those things. So yeah, it is an elite group of people, but there are more voices than I might've expected having only read headlines before. So as one example, I spoke in the open forum. So they do events within the town so that anyone around can just attend and listen and engage. And you have speakers like Jane Goodall getting on the stage and others. Um, But we did a panel on air pollution, including climate pollution as one form of air pollution. And sitting to my left was this woman, Temulin, from Mongolia, who's one of the 50 WEF global shapers um, that they have in addition to the Young Global Leaders Program, who was at the annual meeting, um, who's speaking at the annual meeting and is a part of, you know, listening and contributing to the conversations that are going on. Um, so I know way more about those programs that they have now that I've been here and been involved in these type of activities. But it is a limited group. It's the same thing as COP. Who gets a ticket to go in the blue zone? Who gets a badge? You know, there's only so many badges that go around. Indeed. And in terms of kind of the use of your time and how worthwhile it is for you to go is what the crucial thing that you're getting to talk to a different audience, as you were suggesting, people who aren't generally interested in or closely following climate and energy issues, or is it about you getting to hear other people's perspectives or or both of those things? Why is it worth your time? There's a, there's a few answers to that that I could give. There's a lot of reasons why I think it's valuable. Um, I think it's valuable to be in these conversations so you know what the reality is of them. Because being in the room and having those conversations, asking those questions when you're like, what? Or is this what we're going you know, towards? But also, there's 150 experts here. So there was an experts welcome dinner. So I know there are 150 of us, because that's what we were told, who are brought in to baseline conversations. So I go into conversations, and um, in a conversation I was in today is just one example. We were talking about how you get built, big projects built and the idea of stakeholder engagement versus having communities be equity partners and projects and all of that. And I brought up, I said, hey, there's this book that's literally titled How to Get Big Things Done. There's this other book, Speed of Trust. And in the first one, they have a database of thousands of huge projects. And they talk about what gets them done and what doesn't. And they talk about this engagement, community, inclusion, equity piece of it. And so instead of a conversation not being not having that foundation, I'm able to s- help set the foundation based on here's what the evidence tells us, here's what we know and what we don't know. And that is a really, I think, valuable piece to add to these conversations. If they didn't have it, you know, the conversations will start in a very different place. Um, the second thing that I'll mention, and I won't go down the whole list, is yeah, I'm listening and learning from a lot of people that I don't spend a ton of time with, um, not on the daily because it's very, very rare that you have this group of people in one place. (laughs) It's why people follow it and track it. Um, I'm just walking down the hallways today and I see Paul Ryan and the governor of Georgia and, you know, other people and the equivalents in so many countries. I met, you know, governor's equivalents in Korea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, from different provinces of different countries all over the world. And I, how often do you get that chance to have a conversation and, and chat about a topic? Like not much. So what about you, Julio? Did you have a view on the World Economic Forum? Do you ever go to Davos? Uh, I have not yet gone to Davos. So uh, uh, I was like Melissa last year, still a bridesmaid. (laughs) Um, In in this regard, hot and cold on Davos. It seems like some years are more consequential than others. Again, which is, I think, a reasonable 
expectation. Uh, you know, they can't all be great. It is a place, like Melissa says, where com- specific kinds of conversations can happen that don't happen elsewhere. So as an example, there was a story earlier this week that said that only 3% of shareholder movements on climate this year succeeded, which means 97% didn't. Having governments and company leaders talking about that is useful. Why did they fail? What was the change? Is it economic headwinds? Is it a change in ESG stance? Are there ways to work together to have more consequential outcomes? Are there things where the shareholder movements can support government actions or the opposite? Like Those kinds of conversations are very infrequent and rare, and Davos is a good platform for them. I will also say that a lot of the criticism around Davos, I think, is ill-focused, like the, the jet planes for people flying there. I'm like, come on, that's like not even one sporting event. Get over it. Like, it's like, uh, like we talked about this before, but uh, a weekend at Wembley Stadium is going to have a larger emissions footprint than Davos is. But I also think that it is an echo chamber. People who are there don't really know what manufacturing is, don't actually know what energy systems are. Having experts in the room to baseline is a great way to counter that. But a lot of this stuff needs to be sort of anchored in the reality of energy systems. And so I would see that, again, as an opportunity to build. If the World Economic Forum could think about not just having young global leaders come in, but also thinking about maybe some study tours where people who are important in Davos, people important in these circles, visit facilities, talk to experts more frequently so that the meetings can become more consequential. Yeah, and I'll say some of the discussions we're having, I gave a talk on this main pavilion area that it's it's big, lots of people come by and all that. Um, there's only so many chairs. And I gave a, when I say energy, what do I mean talk? Like, what do I mean? And when I talk about getting to net zero, what are the buckets of things we do? And I had CEOs sitting on these little, I call them mushroom chairs, but these little pod soft things in this kind of like eclectic area, just like listening and then asking me questions after. And I was really glad for that. But as you say, like the education piece of this, it's actually come up in a ton of discussions I've been a part of, which is I talk to these people and they have no idea what I do. And then I'm talking to them. This has come up too. And I'm talking to them. And obviously I have an agenda because I run a company. So like, how do we get more students educated no matter where they go, just have them be educated in how these different pieces of the energy system work so they can have that awareness in whatever application they're doing with their career. And these are good questions to be asking. Indeed. And Julio, you were just mentioning some of the criticism of Davos on the World Economic Forum. As I'm sure you know, it has quite a weird reputation in some of the odder corners of the internet. There's a whole sort of conspiracy theory thing about how this is all very sinister and it's sort of instrument of global control and all the rest of it, which I think fundamentally is very silly. Actually, some of it's quite sinister as well. I don't believe in any of this. I don't think anyone needs to give uh, too much attention to this stuff. But there is an interesting fundamental issue I think it raises, which is the question of, as you were saying, Melissa, sort of exclusivity and inclusivity. And you know, when you get all these leaders from these different fields from all around the world getting together and talking to each other, and the great majority of the population of the world is excluded, and people can exchange ideas and have conversations, some of which are open to the public in some ways, but a lot of which aren't, naturally that kind of raises suspicions. And inevitably, some people are going to run with those suspicions and take them much too far. 
and kind of greatly exaggerate the influence and impact that something like the World Economic Forum can have. As I say, there's a there's a real issue there. And I mean, you mentioned this, you, know, you talked about groupthink and everyone basically getting together in a room and agreeing with each other and coming out with a certain set of ideas that don't reflect enough diversity of viewpoints, don't reflect really the spread of opinions that there are in the world. And that then creates tensions and problems in terms of when people leave Davos and go and try to actually make change in the world, it makes it harder for them to do that. Julia, what do you think? So for starters, I think it's adorable that people believe that there will be some like conclave of Illuminati who govern things. <laughs> like, like, like uh, if you see these people for real, you'd immediately realize how, how silly that notion is. Although it is exactly why Kim Stanley Robinson made like a point in his book, Ministry of the Future, of like rounding up these people at Davos and giving them a five-day socialist teach-in. Like <laughs> that's part of like why these things happen. It's always hard to find the right balance. I don't want to make it sound like this is sort of easy to do. Let's be clear, most of the world doesn't actually have an opinion about sustainable aviation fuels and wouldn't necessarily know how to make them real, right? So, so there are aspects of the conversation where you want business leaders, government leaders, and experts working on corners of the problem that they can make progress on. I do think, though, that uh, it's it's not so much about groupthink, but that the echo chamber, it is easy to think that ideas that are hatched in that place uh, are automatically born good. And as we've seen, that's not always true. If ideas are going to come out of Davos, and they should, they need to be proved against the real world in real ways. And that should include more inclusion of voices from the global south. That should include more perspectives from civil society of all kinds. But even then, I hope that the people who come to those conversations have a workmanlike sensibility about it. But they don't just appear to vent. They appear to, to assist. Uh, I feel like we've raised a generation of inquisitors. Everybody wants to hold people's feet to the fire. I'm like, hold everybody's feet to the fire. Nobody walks very far. We got to figure out how to get to yes and to get things going too. Melissa, what do you think? So I'm here with two members of the Center on Global Energy Policy team. Um, so Jason Bordoff, our director, and Jocelyn on his team, who has been incredible support all week. And my goodness, couldn't have done stuff without her. She's amazing. But I find it very interesting and valuable that Jason and I have both been in a full-out run going between meetings because he's a geopolitics and national security expert around energy and climate stuff. And I'm engineer policy, some economics. You know, it's like I'm the other end of the pie or other slice of the pie, whatever. I'm we complement each other in our backgrounds. And this is one of the few places where both of those voices that are quite different, really, um, in terms of our approaches and the lenses we apply to it are in the room. Um, and that's just an interesting reflection I've been kind of ruminating on in the last few days. So now look, you um, have been in the snow in Davos, but you haven't needed to go to Switzerland to get snow this week, because <laughs> what I want to move on to talking about now is the snow we've had across the US, absolutely brutally cold conditions. I think at one point there were 100 million people in the US under uh, alerts, weather alerts for extreme cold. There was snow falling as far south as Mississippi and Louisiana. And I want to just think about some of the implications of that for energy. One of the things in particular that there's been a lot of focus on has been Texas, of course, obviously, I know this very well, but winter storm Uri in 2021, there were blackouts that lasted for days and hundreds of people died. 
But over the past few days, as of the time of recording, and, and touch wood on this, hopefully this will remain the case, but things seem to have gone a lot better. There have been so far no major power failures in Texas, and I saw Greg Abbott, the state's governor, talking about this. He said that the grid performed flawlessly and was never failing. So, question, interested in your takes on what's happened in Texas. I mean, I think Greg Abbott has been saying that, oh, the grid's performed better now because of the changes we introduced and there's more power generation on the grid and winterization protections against cold weather have been better and ERCOT has more tools to help keep the grid stable. What's your take on this? Melissa, obviously you lived in Texas, you follow this very closely. What do you think's been happening? Oh man. So um, first thing I'm going to say is I love my home state. I'm a proud Texan, many generations deep. I did live in a lot of places growing up, but I, I'm proud and I they're great people in the state. Um, so I lived through Oh, goodness, how many major blackouts, like all your favorites <laughs> that you read about in the past while. Uh, when I was a graduate student at University of Texas at Austin um, in 2021 during you know COVID, we were living in Austin. Um, actually, I mentioned the podcast I do through Columbia, The Big Switch that Julio was on, um, talking about hydrogen. But season one of that entire show is talking about how we decarbonize electricity, but it's actually done against the backdrop of Winter Storm Yuri, where we lost power for a week. Julio, we were recording a podcast. Do you remember? I was like on a hot spot in my car because that was the only place. And I had a beanie on and a huge jacket because I was like trying to minimize how much fuel I used because we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, it was pretty crazy. So I think we've gotten pretty lucky. I think if you read the work done by um, a lot of great Texas-based researchers at University of Texas, not just Michael Weber's group, but including Michael Weber's group there, um, but other universities around the state and outside of the state who've looked into it. And I'm glad the power's on for the most part because it is keeping people safe. Um, and that's great. There have been some blips, but yeah, it's been pretty lucky. And that's that's great. And I hope it continues. I really do. I am absolutely not confident that we have solved the underlying issues that have led to some really dangerous situations in the past. And that's just looking at the evidence of like what we, when we look at not just the one that happened a few years ago, but the one that happened when I was a grad student, which uh, is a few more years than that ago. Um, and we had the same kind of findings. There's big brick report, all this other stuff. And those investments haven't happened yet. And as we look to electrify more and more things, and we're depending on it more and more, I think about it now that I'm an electric car and I was sitting in a diesel car during that blackout and that tank of fuel had a lot of life to give, um, literally in some cases, but it gave people heat and safe spots. So there's so much weight on these conversations, man. But as far as the evidence goes, I don't see that the investments have been made in both the technical parts of the system, but also the market structures, the regulatory system, et cetera, to encourage the things that we need to actually have that be the strong and flexible backbone that we need. I am very curious what both of you think about it as non-Texans who don't have the the ties, man, <laughs> to the state where, you know, you're proud of the state. Man, that power grid is not doing you, not doing you well. So let me start by talking about the fact that we don't say the words bomb cyclone anymore. Thank God for that. But uh sorry, Julia, I'd forgotten that until right now that we called it a bomb cyclone. I you're right. I I blocked that one out. Um sorry, please continue. Yeah. Like, but, but these kinds of events are both predictable and predictable. 
when we started talking about climate change 20 years ago, these kinds of events were predicted. So I don't want people to think this is, you know, some perverse anomaly that will never happen again. Quite the opposite. Happened 2021, happened 2022, happened 2023, happened 2024. So I do think that we have managed to dodge a bullet again. We are, we're getting better at paper ordering these things, but we haven't made the big investments in infrastructure we need to, to really solve the problem. And in fact, quite the opposite, what we've seen coming out of this storm is in fact a real spike in electricity demand um, for heating, uh, for heat pumps, for electric vehicles, for all these things. People are actually using way more electricity during these times. Um, in the past, we have ramped up coal, we have ramped up other kinds of things to make up that shortfall. It's harder to do that these days because the coal plants are shutting down. We've actually just decommissioned a whole bunch of plants this year. So the reliability is going to continue to be an issue. We haven't built out the transmission that we need to. ERCOT remains separated from the rest of the grid, so it's still more vulnerable than the rest of the grid. But the rest of the grid needs help too. Um, maybe AI can help at some point. We'll find out. But uh, I do, I do want to sort of draw one other. There's been a lot of stories recently about how the UK is really falling down on transmission build-out and how that's jeopardizing their economic growth. And a number of people were saying, watch this space. That's going to be the story this year in the US. Because as electricity demand is growing, as these shocks are coming, we're going to need to put more money into the grid. Every week is infrastructure week, my friends, for the next 30 years. And so the Texas situation today, like, again, I think we've dodged a bullet, but we haven't solved the fundamental problems. So one way that I describe it, and then Ed, I really want to hear what you think about this, and especially because Julio just brought in the UK as well. But around this, it's like the house has a foundation issue and we're redoing the kitchen and we're like adding a bedroom, but like the foundation needs like some shoring up. And it's not that it's not fixable. It's absolutely fixable. We know how to do it. We got the contractor on speed dial. We can get it done next week. In this case, it would take longer than that because this is huge infrastructure pro projects. But you know, it's the Achilles heel. It doesn't matter what how pretty the paint is or how great the tile is. If you don't fix that foundation, you're going to have cracks and they're going to come at very inconvenient times. But Ed, I'm really curious for your thoughts. So I 100% agree with what Julio has been saying about transmission and the absolutely vital importance of getting more transmission built. Actually, there were a few encouraging steps that were made last year, projects getting final investment decisions, projects getting approved and so on in several parts of the US. So it looks like there's some activity going on, clearly not enough though, and definitely more needs to happen. As you say, more needs to happen around Texas in particular to help Texas. I do think that's part of the solution, although not the whole solution. One of the things I'm interested in your thoughts on is the question of the measure that Texas adopted last year, substantial public vote in favor of this, which was essentially a scheme to subsidize gas-fired power generation to encourage more gas-fired power generation to be put on the grid, which people have said is this is going to be the answer and this is the thing which will make the grid more reliable and enable us to cope with these kind of extreme conditions. And if we have a shortfall in renewable generation in particular, do you think that measure makes sense? Melissa, what do you think? I'm actually curious what Julio thinks first on this. I've got such an insider's view in Texas. I have very strong opinions, but I'm Julio. Okay, yeah, go on, Julio. They, yeah, you go first. Uh, I think that virtue signaling through this kind of stuff is just nuts. You know, natural gas can help, but they haven't weatherized. They haven't weatherized natural gas plants enough. 
They haven't added the balance of system that you need to make sure that those things are in. So adding gas doesn't solve the problem. It's a, it is a kind of political posturing and it drives me crazy. The same could be said if they pass something that said, we're just going to have all renewables. Like The fact that these are complicated, nuanced issues that are being exploited for political gain in, in the short term is really awful. The core problems remain the core problems. Saying we should subsidize natural gas, we'll line some pockets, we'll add some plants, but won't solve the problems. And we know what the problems are. There's no mystery about that. And those are? That we built the system 50 years ago. Well, 100 years ago, we built the first wave. Then about rough numbers, 50 years ago, we built the second wave. We can't be building our grids for the past, which is what we have done. We need to build it for not just the future. We need to build it for the reality we're seeing today, but we should build it for the future so that it's able to supply us with reliable, affordable, and clean power moving forward. And we have the technologies to do it. It is a process, though. That's the thing. It, it's not a headline tomorrow. It's a thoughtful, intentional process of building things out. What I'm really encouraged by in the state is the first time I worked in energy in Texas was during the CREZ zone buildouts. And that was like some Kevin Costner, build it, they will come type situation things. Um, so I'm encouraged, and I think that the state can do it again. But it's about practical conversations following the evidence. Yeah. And they're going to have to spend some money for real doing the hard stuff, shoring up the foundation. I love that analogy, Melissa. And uh, the problem is like people don't live in the foundation. People live in kitchens. People live in and look at the paint. You have to spend this unglamorous money on this unglamorous thing. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And certainly an issue we've talked about several times in the past on the show, and I know we'll be returning to because it is just so important. And in the meantime, we'll be watching Texas very closely to hope that conditions remain good and that the power and the lights stay on for everybody over the next few days while this uh, brutal weather continues. So unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Julio, I know you've got to run. Just before I let you go very quickly, we're going to do our free electrons, these personal items that we've brought in. I have one, uh, Melissa, especially for you, which I'm uh, very pleased to share with you. But uh, uh, Julio, do you want to do yours first? What's your free electron? So my free electron is uh, I, my parents uh, need additional attention these days. So I was visiting my dad and among other things, saw an incredibly good looking recipe for braised lamb shanks, which is what I'm making this weekend. Like for real, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is that there is a real risk in my parents' home about them forgetting and leaving the stove on. And that is a real challenge that needs to be managed. And a friend suggested, well, maybe you should throw in an induction stove. Maybe that would like solve the problem and it would avoid the fire risk. I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's the core problem, but sure, maybe. We'll see if we'll see if that's the thing. Very interesting. And presumably with a an induction stove, an electric appliance, it ought to be easier to make it smart as well. So you could see from your phone whether it's switched on or not. Man, I never want to be watching my phone to figure out if my folks are cooking <laughs> soup. Like that's just not how I'm going to spend my days. I don't know. I think some people could find that useful, but yeah, I see your point. Anyway, Melissa, what's yours? Oh man, I don't know where to start. Um, but the cooking comment actually has me thinking about the incredible. Like I know it's not going to sound exciting, guys, but like the bouillon, like the broths that I've been having here in Switzerland have been amazing. And I don't know how much of it is like food's amazing when you get it because you were running too long. Um, it's cold and it's this warm, salty thing. And you're also probably a little dehydrated because you've been just running through the Alps, um, not to evoke the sound of music. But um, I just, I keep 
enjoying those meals and now Julio has me thinking about it. But okay, my serious uh, free electron is actually a request if I can. So you remember how I was telling you about my books that I was going to be reading um, in the next little bit? And mm, okay, yeah, yeah. I had February planned out because Ernie Scheider's book um, was coming out and then I was going to get Michael Weber's book midway through February. And so I was reading Michael Mann's book. Well, I don't I know they listened to the episode because they reached out, but I actually, between the time we recorded and then the time they heard the episode, so they tell me, I got copies of my two February books, so now I have a problem because I definitely started reading them, which is what am I going to do probably like the second week of February? Um, what book should be next? I've got a lot of contenders, but I actually want to ask for help to pick one. And I'm not going to give a list. Like, What's the favorite energy and climate book you've really enjoyed lately? Um, it can be fiction or nonfiction. Um, Anna Amrit Cohen reached out on Twitter with one of hers or whatever, X. Um, with one of her favorites, but I want suggestions. Ed, if you have one, I want to know. I need to know because I'm yeah, running out and, of books. Yeah, and I do. Funny you should say that. Really? Because okay, there's, a, there's a climate book that I've literally just been looking at. Actually, I was going to mention it as a free electron myself, but I thought I couldn't do that really until I've read it. It's a book called Not the End of the World by Hannah Ritchie. Have you heard of this? I've heard of Hannah Ritchie, Not the End of the World. Let me look yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So she is, she's um, quite a well-known data scientist. And just reading the review of it here, so she's lead researcher at the groundbreaking Ooh. Our World in Data website run out of Oxford University. And essentially, it's a book about, I guess you might call climate realism and against climate doomism and saying, you know, yes, climate change is a very serious problem. Yes, it's something we need to address and tackle, but you shouldn't think that we're all doomed. You shouldn't think that there's nothing people can do to avert the most catastrophic futures. You shouldn't think that we've made no progress at all. It looks like a really interesting and well-argued book, well worth checking out. That is Not the End of the World by Hannah Ritchie. So I would say that's the definitely one I'd recommend. I'm looking at it right now, Ed, and this looks perfect. Thank you for that. Still asking for more suggestions. Please reach out. Um, send them in on whatever platform you like. Um, but this looks this looks really cool. I'm I'm excited to see how Hannah talks through it. Like I'm sorry, I'm I'm reading. This is oh, I got to close the tab. Yeah, I have to close the tab. <laughs> yeah, like exactly, read, exactly. Let's, let, let's move on. But anyway, Next. point being, it oh, does goodness. seem does seem like a a really interesting argument. Definitely well worth a look, I think, and certainly something that I'm looking forward to reading. So, as I was saying, my free electron then, Melissa, is something I thought about specifically for you, because it's something I read this week, which really kind of um, took me aback a little bit, which is a story about COP29 that I was reading in The Guardian. So, as you know, um, COP29 is going to be held later this year in November in Azerbaijan. And the story of The Guardian was pointing out that there's an organizing committee for COP29, which has 28 men on it and not a single woman. And I thought, Melissa, in light of some of the things you've been talking about in terms of representation of women in climate policy, the importance of gender balance and so on, this is something which is, well, it kind of shocked me, presumably this is something that you will have views on. Yeah. Yes, totally. Which is when you have a group of folks and you know that as a world, you know, there's something that 
is perhaps common with roughly 50% of us, rough numbers, and none of that is in a room. I'll actually go back to the points we made about Davos. It's like you're missing perspectives and the outcome will be affected by it. And we talk so often about how you get to solutions to tough problems and by having a diversity of opinions, it's like you actually get to more robust solutions, like you get to more workable solutions. And uh, that's that's disappointing, I guess I'll say in short. And I wish I could be a fly on the walls, the second thing I'll see behind the discussions that led to that group. Um, I'd really like to understand kind of how they chose the group and it led to a certain mix of folks and, you know, what was the reasoning behind that? You know, how did it end up going that way? I'd really love to understand that. That would be an interesting one. I don't know if they'll ever publish that in a newspaper, but if I could be a fly on the wall in some kind of, that would be, I would like to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing I think about this is that I wonder if that'll last, given that it's now become public, it's attracting a bit of international scrutiny, people are talking about it, that feels like an unsustainable position. That feels like something that you can't continue with, really, having that kind of all-male committee making all those key decisions for the COP. So we'll see. But I suspect it'll change. So hello, this is Ed again, speaking from a couple of days later, in the time between we recorded that show, and we were talking about this free electron of mine, the government of Azerbaijan actually announced that they were adding 12 women to that organizing committee for COP29. So I was saying at the time, I thought it was unlikely to stand that they would be having this all-male committee, so it has proved. Uh, and I think certainly in terms of what we've just been talking about, the points Melissa has been making about viewpoint diversity and so on, we can definitely say that's a good thing that they have decided to widen the group in that way. Now, back to the show. And my hope on that is that they took a look at who else isn't in the room. Because um, I can't imagine it's just a gender dynamic that maybe wasn't considered. Because that's one that is maybe the first one people think about in many cases. So it's like, what else isn't in the room? Because again, you want to get to the richest possible outcomes. Those different perspectives are really helpful to make sure you're not having these massive blind spots that you could avoid by just having a diverse set of voices in a room and making sure that each one of them has a space at the table, as it were. So I hope they not just consider the gender dynamics, but take a hard look at the diversity of the group as a whole. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I hadn't seen the headline. As I told you, Ed, I've been just running. I have not read much news this week. Um, yeah. So I have to catch up on the plane back, but I've got these books in my bag that I want to finish because I got halfway through and now I got to finish them. <laughs> so we'll see. Indeed. Indeed. Now we ought, we ought to wrap it up in just a moment. Before we do that, just on your point about viewpoint diversity and the importance of that, I have, I think, a fantastic anecdote from my own household. So my wife is completely addicted to the spelling bee in the New York Times, you know, the thing where you get a kind of a, you get sort of like a hexagon pattern of letters and you have to make as many words as you can out of it. And she's really great at it and, you know, gets to kind of genius level, whatever, every time, bang, 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 bang. But just occasionally, she will say, I'm kind of stuck on this. Can you take a look and help me out on it? And I take a look and then maybe I'll find one or two words that she hasn't seen. And so kind of between us, we can get to genius level when she couldn't do that on her own. If I ever have to do it on my own, I'm absolutely terrible. And I don't get, I get kind of extremely poor level. So it's not that I'm better at it than her, but the pair of us combined with our different perspectives and ideas and backgrounds of knowledge and so on 
are better than either of us doing it on their own. And I thought that was a really neat little parable about, as you say, the value of diversity and why it's important to bring together different perspectives because you'll get to a better outcome that way. Prepare for it, y'all. I'm about to bring in a high school antidote in a second. So today we say teamwork makes a dream work, right? I mean, seriously, you can lift heavier loads when there's a lot of hands, all those sayings. Um, So here's the high school thing. My coach, uh, when I was growing up, my water polo coach, he said, together everyone achieves more. And so that's a team. And I know I'm terrible at that at the spelling bee. I'm absolutely terrible at it. I'm never close to genius. I don't even know if phoning a friend would help. I need a genius friend to help me out. But yeah, when it comes to all of these things, it's just a continuous theme. Having a team and having a diverse team, like you can accomplish more for sure. Very true. So we do have to end it there. Many thanks, Melissa, for joining us. Thanks, Ed. Julio, this has been fun again. Really enjoyed it. It has indeed. Many thanks to you, Julio. What What a great pleasure. I look forward to hearing this live. Absolutely. See you again soon. Thanks to our producers, Sam Nash and Toby Biggins-Gilchrist. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do keep your feedback coming on whatever social media platform makes sense to you. I just want to give a quick mention to Rod Adams of Atomic Insights, who left a a long and very thoughtful comment the other day on X slash Twitter, platform formerly known as Twitter, raised a lot of interesting issues about our coverage of nuclear power on the energy gang with some suggestions for things we should be talking about all those points are well made and we hear what you're saying and certainly we will be coming to some of those issues in the future and thinking about them further in the weeks and months to come same goes for everybody else please do get your points in tell us what we're doing wrong what we're doing right what you'd like to hear more of and so on And we'll be back in two weeks with all the latest news and views from the Elitch transition. Until then, goodbye.